available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome to Outlook. I'm Sheila Allen and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday the 13th of September 2023. And coming up this week, we've got a right mixed bag for you. We've got Margaret talking about Charter House, a piece about glorious gorillas, something about the Hawks Head, sorry, Hawks Hurst Gang, which I've never heard of, but we'll find out more later, a hurdy-gurdy memory, a lovely piece about grandmothers, and Dave's been at the World Blind Games again, plus, of course, our usual features such as post-bag, post-bag even, sport, uh, what's on, update from the Resource Centre and starting as usual with the fast week's news with readers myself and Elaine. Outlook News. A total of £40 million has been invested into the region's bus network to protect it until 2025. The cash from Transport for West Midlands will ensure current services continue until the end of next year. It follows an agreement between Transport West Midlands and bus companies, including National Express West Midlands and Diamond Bus. The deal heads off the immediate threat of around one-third of the region's bus services being withdrawn or frequencies reduced following the ending of government COVID support funding in June. Operators have faced increasing cost pressures due to steep rises in fuel, maintenance and staff costs over the last two years and are struggling to keep buses on the road. Andy Street, Mayor of the West Midlands, led talks with the bus companies and government to secure the agreement to protect services. Under the agreement, Transport for West Midlands, part of the West Midlands Combined Authority, has reallocated part of the region's £88 million bus service improvement plan grant to keep services running while a long-term sustainable funding solution is found. This grant, awarded to Transport West Midlands by the Department for Transport last year, was to be used on a variety of schemes to encourage more people to use the buses. But now approximately 40 million of it will be used to support bus operators to maintain services at their present level. However, Transport for West Midlands is still on course to invest in improved bus priority, more electric and hydrogen buses, as well as securing agreements with operators. The West Midlands has managed to retain the vast majority of its bus routes despite a dramatic drop in usage during and since the pandemic. The current network is at around 90% of pre-COVID levels, a level many other regions have failed to maintain. Fares were increased in July, reluctantly, say the operators, to reduce cost pressure on bus companies and keep more services running. The price of a day ticket rose from £4 to £4.50, for example. Despite this, the region's bus fares remain among the lowest in the country and remain lower than they were in 2017. 
A home bakery business owner in Coventry who uses unique flavours inspired by her hometown in Uzbekistan has increased in popularity among the local community and this is despite only baking and selling for two months. 28-year-old Malika Momimova is the owner of Around the Dough which she conducts at her home in Chapelfields. She moved to England in 2017 to attend Portsmouth University and has had many hospitality jobs from working at a bakery in Portsmouth serving celebrities like the Royal Family at the Goring Hotel in London and working part-time in the Forest Coffee House in Kenilworth. She moved to Coventry in May 2020 when she married her husband, Usman Hussein. Speaking to Coventry Live, Malika told us how her baking journey started. I was born in a country where having guests around is such a big thing and all the neighbours could just pop to your house and you give them tea and desserts, which was the case for us as we always had guests. My mother would leave me with a helper, and she would help us cook everything and clean the house. She was a very good cook, and she would always cook stuff for the family, and I would watch and learn from her, she said. Malika added how her experience living in England made her want to start her own bakery. When I moved to Portsmouth, I needed a part-time job, so I thought I would go to a bakery to see if I could get a job. I popped into the only bakery around called Bread Addiction and asked if they needed people, and they responded with a yes, absolutely, as they were looking for chefs. They gave me a list of things to make, and I had no clue what I was doing on my first shift, so I practiced and started baking. I was seeing how many people were buying the cakes, which I thought were not special, but once I saw reviews of people saying it was delicious and amazing, it made me think I can do this myself from home. Malika sells a range of items from cakes, macaroons, sourdough breads and cheesecakes, with her favourite baked item being croissants. She sells macaroons at £2.35 a piece, a cheesecake slice for £4, with prices varying for bespoke cakes. Mm. Travellers have set up camp on a green space in Coventry. Caravans were first seen at Wyking Croft Nature Reserve on Wednesday, September the 6th. Coventry City Council confirmed that they are aware of the encampment and are working to recover the land. A notice to vacate the land was issued but has been ignored. A formal court eviction will now take place on Monday, September the 11th. Coventry Live recently uncovered that taxpayers have spent tens of thousands of pounds in legal fees, cleaning up costs and improving site security. Figures revealed that over the past five years, a total of £223,000 has been spent on clearing encampments in the city. Councillor Peter Mayle previously described the illegal encampments as an ongoing problem in Coventry. A spokesman for Coventry City Council said, We are working on recovering the land and are aware of the encampment on Wykingcroft Nature Reserve. A notice to vacate the land was issued but has been ignored. We will now move to a formal court eviction hearing to recover our land, which is set for Monday, September the 11th. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, sorry dear, Rishi Sunak has paid a visit to Coventry as part of his celebration of the city's prominent science and innovation role. Mr Sunak visited the University of Warwick on Thursday, September the 7th and met with a number of students and researchers there. During his appearance, he announced the UK would rejoin the EU's flagship research scheme, Horizon. 
The Prime Minister chose to make the major policy announcement at Warwick because of its world-class reputation for science and innovation and has close ties with research partners across Europe. During the visit, he was given a tour of the university's International Manufacturing Centre, where he was shown cutting-edge 3D printing and scanning technology and spoke to researchers about their work. Earlier, the Prime Minister had a private conversation with university leaders, Sir David Normington, Emma Flynn, Rachel Samby-Thomas and Dr Chris Twine. The International Manufacturing Centre is one of the biggest buildings on campus and at the heart of the university's technological research and testing. A variety of projects have been undertaken with global companies to develop new products or improve processes at the centre. Professor Emma Flynn, the university's provost, said, We were delighted to host the Prime Minister today and welcome the opportunity to showcase some of the cutting-edge technology and innovation we have here at Warwick. The fact the Prime Minister chose to come to Warwick to make such a major announcement on science funding gives me a sense of enormous pride in our brilliant academics and researchers who have built our reputation as a world-leading university on science, innovation and research over many years. Shop owners have been left utterly frustrated as years of plans to regenerate Riley Square in Coventry still remain at the drawing board. They say the area continues to be plagued by criminality and antisocial behaviour, with no sign of the works previously planned for the area, leaving many business owners at their wits' end. Talks about the fate of the dilapidated shopping precinct have been ongoing since 2016. An injection of cash and investment was pledged to the community in Belgreen, and in that time, parts of Riley Square have fallen into disrepair and footfall has significantly reduced. Coventry Live first revealed in 2015 that Coventry City Council was looking to sell off its leasehold for Riley Square. It allowed the local authority to cash in on unwanted assets against a background of severe budget cuts. In 2017, Innovative Retail Development announced they would be taking over the site and vowed to completely revamp the square. Developers said they were going to remove the canopies around the shops, provide new shop frontages and demolish Joseph Latham House. In October 2020, the development owners said the shopping precinct would be returned to its former popularity. However, shop owners have said the neighbourhood has instead worsened and the works have yet to go ahead. Coventry Live visited Belgreen and found bins overflowing, widespread antisocial behaviour and several shop units which are now empty and boarded up. Shop owners have spoken of their frustration as long-awaited plans to revamp the precinct continue to be put on hold. New Start For You is a community interest company based on Riley Square. It provides a range of services including employment and housing support to people who have settled in the UK from Europe as well as to the people of Coventry. Project manager at New Start For You, Carolina Grabowski, told Coventry Live, I feel disappointed that nothing has happened. I live near Riley Square I have lived in the area for six years and there are no changes at all. Everything falls apart. 
Asked how she feels about Riley Square, she said, It is sad and depressing. People drinking from the morning. It is not something I would like to watch. I would rather watch families and people shopping around and having a good time rather than people sitting on a bench and drinking. A by-election is to take place in Elston next month as Councillor Becky Gittins has decided to stand as Labour parliamentary candidate in Cluey East at the next general election. Councillor Gittins has been representing Earlston at the authority since 2019, but will look to become an MP for the area of North Wales, where she was born and brought up. Although the by-election date is yet to be confirmed, it is expected to take place in late October. During her time on the council, Councillor Gittins has served on scrutiny boards, the licensing and regulatory committee, and has been a deputy cabinet member for children and young people. She first came to Coventry to study at the University of Warwick back in 2013. Councillor Gittins said, I love Coventry. From the moment I first arrived, I fell in love with the city's dynamism and diversity. It was an honour to be elected as councillor for Earlston Ward in 2019, and I am so proud of the work we have done in Earlston and across the city. However, it would not be right to represent Earlston from afar, so I am resigning to allow local residents to elect a new councillor able to serve Earlston with the time and energy it deserves. Council leader, Councillor George Duggins, said his colleague would be missed. I want to thank her for her time serving on the council, which she has done with enthusiasm and distinction. Becky was a very effective Deputy Cabinet Member for Children's Services, particularly in her work with engaging with young people. She was an extremely committed ward councillor, and I know her hard work was appreciated and valued by those she represented. I wish Becky well, and I'm sure she will be successful in Cluid East, where the constituents would be lucky to have such a professional, engaging and knowledgeable person to represent them. As the world marks a year since the death of Queen Elizabeth II, Coventry City Council has revealed to the observer that work is ongoing to build a statue in her honour, with several possible locations identified. But the authority said nothing concrete had been decided yet, and added it was still awaiting exact information about the memorial protocol for the late Queen. Council officers are working through concept designs and initial costings for the statue, and although a location has not been chosen yet, potential places include Greyfriars Green, the Belgrade Plaza and Speaker's Corner. The suggestion for a statue was made by the Cabinet Member for Jobs, Regeneration and Climate Change, Councillor Jim O'Boyle, at a special meeting of the Council during last year's National Mourning Period. He said a lasting tribute to celebrate her life and service felt very fitting, and added it was something both he and the authorities still wanted to pursue. The statue could be made out of stone or bronze jesmonite, and, depending on the option taken, it could be either lifelike or ten feet tall. A council spokesperson said this could come in between 150,000 and 500,000, although no finance is currently in place as the authority is in an exploratory phase. Last Sunday, the government announced a newly established Queen Elizabeth Memorial Committee, with Her Majesty's former private secretary, Lord Janvrin, appointed as chair. 
The committee will consider all everlasting tributes to the Queen, and alongside developing proposals for a permanent memorial, will create a national legacy programme to allow the entire UK to commemorate her life of service. The late Queen first visited Coventry in May 1948 while still a princess, when she laid the foundation stone on what is now the Upper Precinct. She laid the foundation stone in the cathedral in March 1956, before returning for the consecration service in May 1962, and she returned to the Upper Precinct in June 1970. A Coventry social enterprise has helped over 44,000 children get a good meal during school holidays over the last year through a partnership with Iceland Foods. The award-winning Iceland Food Club, which is run by Fair For You alongside the supermarket firm, was launched across the country last August. In the year since, the Iceland Food Club has lent over £5 million, allowing financially vulnerable customers to avoid food poverty with interest-free microloans of between £25 and £100 to buy everyday items. Microloans are made available to eligible customers on a pre-loaded card with repayments set at £10 per week. And the scheme has now received a cash boost of up to £2 million from Fair for All Finance. Simon Duke's chief executive at Fair for You said, Around a quarter of households in the UK have less than £100 in savings, which makes holiday periods very stressful. Fair for You is delighted to make life easy for tens of thousands of Iceland customers who can't always afford a big grocery shop, but who can afford a small interest-free loan, which is paid back within weeks to help them and their children through the holidays. Coventry's Ground Bakery National Centre for Accessible Transport launched its Accessible Transport Policy Commission at Westminster, chaired by Paralympic icon Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson. The first of its kind project was launched earlier this year and aims to make transport accessible for all by engaging with disabled people to better understand their experiences and come up with solutions. It is funded by the Motability Foundation and led by Coventry University. The Commission aims to bring together disabled people and transport professionals with policy makers to form a more inclusive consensus about the future of the transport system. Vice Chairs on the Commission include Coventry South MPs Ara Sultana. Research from Motability shows disabled people in the UK currently make 38% fewer journeys than able-bodied. This figure hasn't changed in the last decade, impacting disabled people's access to healthcare, employment, education and other social activities. Baroness Gray-Thompson said, whether it's to get to school, commute to work or visit friends, Transport is a vital part of everyday life. However, too many disabled people face extra obstacles because of poor accessibility. We don't want special treatment, only the same experience as everyone else. I'm looking forward to working with my fellow commissioners to bring disabled people and transport professionals together with policymakers from across the UK to break down barriers so in future, no one is left behind. 
Anger is growing in a Coventry community blighted by fly-tipping as locals claim the council's solution is simply to put stickers on the mess. Householders say that the grassed area at the junction of Clement Street and Villiers Street has become a dumping hotspot. Not only are they tired of constantly seeing mounds of abandoned waste, but also the council's response to it. One resident said that the city council has been putting stickers on the rubbish, warning that it is a crime and to dispose of rubbish responsibly. What does this achieve? Nothing, the resident said. The council sent workers out to clear it away, only for it to happen again in a matter of days. He said that he has supplied dashcam footage of a flight ticket in action, but he said the council's response was that the rubbish had already been cleared and they could not take any action. The resident has called for tougher action to prosecute fly-tippers. The council does have four state-of-the-art CCTV cameras and a specially trained officer to help crack down on the scourge of fly-tipping across the city. He said it was time that they paid a visit to his community. The council could put up cameras and actually prosecute those doing it, he said. I'd even accept them putting a skip in the location so that it is controlled and not spilling out all over the pavement and making the area look bad. But they haven't done either. Instead, they choose to keep spending money clearing it rather than dealing with the actual problem. It's no wonder pride in communities is low. A Coventry City Council spokesperson said they are considering putting a camera in the area. Officers have attended the scene to deal with waste and fixed penalty notices have been issued to those responsible. Outlook News. Oh, thank you to Elaine for helping me with the news there. Um, some interesting bits, but there seems to be a lot of... Not very interesting news about it at the moment. There's a lot of doom and gloom, isn't there? But never mind. We'll keep cheerfully enjoy life. The weather's got a bit cooler than it was last week, which pleases me no end because I don't like too much heat. But it is getting shorter days, or they are getting shorter days. So sunrise now is 6.37 and sunset 7.28. So, yeah, it's definitely getting darker in the evenings. I'm noticing that. Haven't really got any announcement other than a little one about um, a concert in Calais. Castle Park, which is Sunday the 17th of September, which is next Sunday, and that's the Cubbington Silver Band, which sounds as though it could be quite nice, and then at the Belgrade Theatre from the 19th to the 23rd of September, there is Heather's The Musical, and I have to admit, I have no idea what that's about, but if you're interested, I'm sure you'll find out. Now, I did say at the start about we have an update from the Resource Centre, but apparently we haven't got one. Poor Hugh's got COVID, apparently, but we don't know how he is. And Joe's not on, not in today. So there's no update. So you'll just have to work out what, what's going on and what you want to do yourselves. But I'm sure they'll be here again next week to tell us all about what's happening at the, at, at the Resource Centre. Now, as usual, we go over to Sarah to find out what's been happening in the world of sport. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, folks. Now, today, just to be different, I'm going to start off with Rugby Union. Now, pride of place this week goes to our own little Coventry Rugby Club who play at Butts Park Arena. 
in the Premiership Cup, they became the second only championship side to beat Premier opposition. But not just any Premier opposition. Oh, no. Coventry 28, Saracens 14. And this was played in front of a record crowd of over 4,100. Wow, I bet that Butch Park was fair rocking. Now, staying with the ovoid shaped ball and in the code of the union, you may be aware, well I've told you anyway a couple of times, uh, that the Rugby World Cup is taking place in France. Well done England, beating Argentina 27 points to 10. Now I must unpack this a little bit because after three minutes one of our players was yellow carded later upgraded to a red card meaning that he would play no more parts. So we played 77 minutes with only 14 men compared to Argentina who had 15 but we had you know we had the jewel in the crown we had a guy called George Ford and my gosh can he kick well he couldn't he can kick for England literally and he he kicked the majority of those points and seven of the Argentinian points were literally gained in the last few minutes when England were partly celebrating and partly, I would imagine, pretty shattered after doing the role of 15 men. Well done also to my second team, Wales, who beat Fiji 32 points to 26. It was a very tight match because I was flicking between that and the US Open. And at one stage it was Wales 23, Fiji 22. And I just thought, oh, I'm going to wait to the end. Well done also to Ireland, who thumped Romania 82-8. But commiserations to Scotland, who lost, albeit they lost to the current championship holders, South Africa. Now, changing the shape of the ball to football, Coventry weren't playing this weekend. In fact, their next match is this coming Friday against Hull at 7.45 away. So don't go up the CBS Arena on Saturday. Well, you can. There's some nice shopping up there, but I'm sure it's not what you're going for. And the reason why they weren't playing at the weekend is, like all of the Premier and Championship clubs, they were closed for an international break so that the qualifiers for the European Championship 2024 could continue. And England played Ukraine in Ukraine. Well, not actually in Ukraine. They have to play their home matches at the moment in Poland. And it was a one-all draw, which was a fair enough result, I think. 
and it meant quite a lot to both sides. But pride of place has to go to Carl Walker, who scored our goal. He's become the 450th man to score the goal by scoring his first ever goal in over 77 appearances. Mind you, he is a Man City defender, not a striker. So you wouldn't really imagine him to score a lot of goals. Now, before the match, there was quite a fitting moment when Ukraine came on, or some of their supporters, and placed a Ukrainian football shirt on the pitch with a map of Ukraine on it. And the commentator said, oh, we need to point out that it is the proper Ukraine. It includes the Crimea and the Donets. FIFA are not making a political point. Their response was that that is the internationally recognised border of Ukraine. So Russia, stuff that in your pipe and smoke it. Now it was a good weekend for our local teams. Stratford Town 4, AFC Sudbury 2, Barwell none, Leamington 2. This means that for the first time since 2020, Leamington have won two consecutive away matches. Well done, Leamington. The only way is up. But not to be outdone by Stratford, Nuneaton 4, Colville 1. So, all in all, a very good weekend for local sides. Whatever shape ball they play with. The weekend saw the conclusion to the US Tennis Open. Now, you might remember that last week I told you our final British player, Jack Draper, was still, at time of recording, in the draw, making this the first ever competition. He'd made it into the second week. Well, I'm sad to report that by the end of the day, and well before you heard me speak, he'd gone out to Medvedev. However... Medvedev last night played Novak Djokovic in the final. What a long match. It started at 9 o'clock, 9pm. I was listening on Radio 5 Live. And Novak Pronk really took the first set very easily. In fact, the commentator was saying, oh, come on, Daniel, Daniel Mevladev. Get going. We want to see a real competition. Well, in the second set, he did. And some of the rallies, in fact, many of them were over 20, but some of them had got 30 shots in them. Unfortunately, at about three games to four, with Medvedev having the four because he was serving first, it was clear that Novak Djokovic wasn't very well. He was kind of wandering round the court. 
when he slipped, he would just lie on the floor. And at the change of ends, he was just sitting in his chair as if everything was too much of an effort. And the commentator was saying, oh, take a medical break, get some infusion, get some fluid into him. But he rallied, and it wasn't pretend either, because some of the shots he, he virtually missed, he just sort of hit at. But he managed to get back on even Stevens and took the second set to a tie break, which I'm pleased to say he won. He also won the third set. So in straight sets, somehow, but don't ask me how, Novak Djokovic not only took the US Open crown, but he becomes the first man ever to win 24 majors, tying with Margaret Court. And you just know that hope that he'll get one more. I just wish he would have had his COVID jab, because by, by now, of course, he'd be way out front, cause, but he was banned from many of the competitions. Anyway, he didn't. That was his choice, and I think he's a silly boy. Now, in the women's singles, Coco Goff of America beat Arsaya Sabalenko of Belarusia. Now, the thing about Coco is she is 19, and she is also such a lovely lady, so gracious so thankful to everybody, not at all brash like many of the tennis players are. So come on, Coco, I think you're going to be around for a long time. Now, well done to the list of British winners. Yes, there were some Brits, but it was the usual ones. The half-British combination in the men's doubles of Joe Salisbury and the American Rajiv Ram. Well done, you two. And, of course, the wheelchair men's doubles, Alfie Hewitt and Gordon Reed won again. But then, in the singles, Alfie Hewitt played Gordon Reed and the younger man, that being Alfie, won. So, all in all, it was a very good competition and some very worthy winners. But apparently, if we thought it was hot here, it was very hot in the States. And that is your sport for this week. Bye, folks. Have a great week. So while sport is very well covered in both radio and television programmes, Sarah always seems to find more interesting things to add to these broadcasts that we give to you. And now we're moving on to Dave with this week's Postbag. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. Hello there, it's your postbag again. Tina is the headline act this week. She's going to talk about memories of radio presenter and resource centre benefactor 
Jeff Harris, who sadly died recently. I went to the pub on Saturday with Edward Julie. Julie. Uh, we went to the Nugget, and, I t- and, we, and we enjoyed ourselves. And the next thing, uh, you may remember, you reported someone's death back two, two weeks ago. And somebody that used to be on the radio, used to be on Mercia, and he used to be on the, uh, the BBC as well, or the Coventry one. His name's Jeff Harris. My mother took me to, they used to have the parade in Coventry, the Irish parade. Mm. And Jeff was sitting in his car, he did say, he said hello to everyone. He was sitting in the, uh, in the radio car. Thank you very much, Tina. When Kevin Sykes was editor of Community Broadcasting Services, now Coventry Talking Newspaper, he went through a phase of inviting everyone of Mercia Sound presenters to be guest presenter on Outlook. One of them was Jeff Harris, who also popped into the studio on broadcasting nights for a while afterwards. He was a popular radio presenter working for Mercia from 1981, moving to Leicester Sound 12 years later before moving to Classic Gold for seven years and two, until 2002. He then returned to the West Midlands at Sargo and Smooth Radio until 2008. He set up Fab FM in 2014 and had been presenting there ever since. Fab FM paid tribute to Jeff Harris, describing him as a great broadcaster and a great friend to many people who will be feeling his loss. And those friends will include Coventry Resource Centre the Blind, to whom he was a great benefactor. One lady that's benefited from the Resource Centre is Doreen Hilton, In a lovely chat we had over the phone the other night, Doreen said how much she enjoyed Edwina's pieces. She was particularly interested in a piece about carpal tunnel syndrome, a painful condition of her hand. Doreen suggests the exercises with Sue at the Monday Club on the first Monday of the month and the centre's yoga classes. A very lovely piece you gave across about Lurchard Tunnel on your wrist with uh, hot water bottles. Um, I would like to say as well, it's arthritis in the fingers, in the hands, it's fibrotic as well. And I will say the yoga um, classes, which they do in the um, Monday Club and also on the Friday, that is good for it too. So if anybody's got, you know, tunnel trouble or arthritis in their hands or their fingers, it's a really good thing to have a go with the yoga as well. But it gets them moving because it gets mine moving. And also, they have some little balls that you can squeeze and a little rolling pin, put it on the table and roll it and that will help your hands and fingers too. You do lovely um, things that you come across with, and I've listened to them all, and I think they're very good, some of them, what you've come out with. 
and I wish you all the best of luck for the rest of it which you do. Okay, so that is um, Tori Hilton signing off. Okay, bye all. Thank you, Doreen. Sue would agree that the squeezy ball exercises that she does and rolling the plastic tubes would help the hands. Sue comes to the Monday Club on the first Monday of the month. The Monday Club meets between 10am and 12 noon. Also at the Monday Club, Doreen and I had a lovely dance once and sang together with Nick Golden singing If You Were The Only Girl In The World and just recently Graham and I were entertaining Julia has this report they were simply the best better than all the rest better than anyone anyone I've ever met Graham and David that is at the Monday Club David wore a skin-tight purple dress and fishnet tights for simply the best. Then they went behind the screen and did a quick change. Graham emerged with leather pants and a Bob the Builder hat, whilst David donned the full Native American costume, complete with full headdress and a tomahawk, and they performed YMCA with actions. They sang a few more too, but I went to sleep. And uh, But I was awakened by a peal of Monday Club laughter. It was good old Jenny telling jokes, and I laughed so much I nearly peed myself. Of course I won the raffle, and the prize was two grillion pounds or a packet of cashew nuts. I chose the nuts because I didn't want to appear greedy. Guess who found some old Christmas crackers behind the sofa? It was me, and here are my favourite jokes. How does Bob Marley like his donuts? With jamming. Why were the banana skins on the floor? They were a pair of slippers. Three, what's red and bad for your teeth? A brick. Happy September, everybody. Love, Julia. Thank you, Julia. With the gear I was wearing, according to your report, I must have been bringing out my inner drag. I asked you what the music was that introduced Julia's report on money, about a talk she gave at the Monday Club. Here's Graham with the answer. In answer to the competition, the music played, the snotty music played, well, I don't know, I'm torn between status quo and... Um, 10 cc, uh, but I'm going to go for status quo, and I bet I'm wrong. <laughs> well, Graham, let's hear that intro piece again. It was Money by Pink Floyd. The music was suggested by former rocker Julia's friend John. Thank you, Graham, for having a go at Julia's quiz about money. And here's those questions again. 
there are bumps on the notes to help visually impaired people. Who knows where they are? The Monday Club says left top of the note. There you are. Two, does anybody know where the notes are made? The Monday Club say the treasury. Three, what material are they made from? Hilda says plastic. Four, why are they made from that material? They say it doesn't rip. Five, some of the coins are milled around the edges and the others are smooth. Why are they milled? Members of the Monday Club says because of the feel. And six, how many sides has a one pound coin got? The Monday Club says twelve. And seven, what year did the old one pound coin stop being produced? Now Peggy says 2003 and Tina says 2019. Here's Graham's answers to Julia's quiz. Not too sure which way we're supposed to hold the banknotes up actually, but you'll find the nodules uh, on the left hand corner if you've got it up the, right, the way I'm thinking of. One for a five, a two for a ten, a three for, for a twenty. Um, I've never come across a fifty pound note. Um, the pound coins, I've been trying to count actually the uh, outer edge with much difficulty, so it's all guesswork this is. But yes, you've got the heads and the tails, but then you've got several flats around the outside, and I'm going to guess at twelve. So if you add the um, heads and tails to it, I'm going for 14. But it is very much a guess, guesswork. The banknotes are made out of a plasticky material because it's more durable than paper. I think that's uh, the answer to that. And I think that was the only thing. I can't think what else I'm supposed to answer. <laughs> Thank you, Graham and the Monday Club, for having a go. We'll find out the answers from Julia soon. Finally, Edwina talks about autumn fashions. Hi everybody, it's Edwina. I'm just smiling. It's, it's another case of going into autumn. As we go into autumn, we do have masses of colour with nature. If you have been lucky enough to have seen at one time, the time of year is colour in the trees all the different shades of brown green, orange yellow, bronze it all shows up with the changing of the season a wonderful time as we talk about colour we do think of fashion and the fashions are changing all the time well that is bombshell to me anyway the fashioning clothes they're putting orange and red together well you've got to be really with it to wear that but it's also quoted the main colour this year for, for clothes is brown they're going back to the 70s and brown was very much one of the in colours then. It is a lovely colour. You can put so many different other shades of colours together with it. 
So I hope some of you do enjoy buying something brown and wearing it. I will buy probably something brown, but certainly not orange and red. I think I'm an in-betweener, or try to be. Thank you, Edwina. And for your messages this week, tell us what you've been doing during the nice weather and anything else you want to talk about, perhaps inspired by any of the items on Outlook, including the news. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. So thank you to Dave for this week's Postbag. And now again, Margaret is bringing you more post-war memories associated with the Charterhouse. Back in 1987, campaigner Dave Griffiths chose to settle in the vicinity of Charterhouse because of the fields and river and open spaces it offered, but has found himself ever since having to spend a lot of his time defending them. What's happening now in terms of positive progress and partnership, he says, has only been possible because there was a fight over the fields. Our firm view is that most of these fields would have been fenced off and public access would have been lost forever, which would have been against the intention of Colonel Wiley's will when he left the land. The problems started in 1964 when the City Council allowed Bluecoat School to open on part of the land Wiley had bequeathed to the people of the city for use as a park or museum for educational purposes. Dave claims the Council pulled out the word education to allow the school to be built and that's where the conflicts of interest began. In the early 1970s, a prosecution against two local residents for walking their dogs on Charterhouse Fields was withdrawn at the last moment and the land remained, in essence, open until the 1990s. But in 1996, following the Dunblane Primary School shooting, Bluecoat School moved to install security fences. A sizeable area was fenced off and residents saw a threat to much more of the area. Their fears grew when news broke that the City Council was seeking to transfer the Charterhouse building itself to Tile Hill College, ahead of the then Conservative government's plan to privatise further education colleges. Dave claims that the next moves from the school and offer to tarmac the main Charterhouse Drive and build four hardcore football pitches on the field stretching down from the London Road entrance were aimed at establishing who controlled the land. A further school application in 2005 to build more security fencing that would close off the field known as Tabletop prompted the residents' group to prepare a campaign to defend public access and even to consider hiring a barrister if need be. 
In the years that followed, they also managed to raise sufficient funding to get proper footpaths, a children's playground and benches installed in the fields. All those works meant that the fields got used more and people's perception of safety got better, Dave says. It was seen as a lovely, quiet place to go. There's enough human use that has stopped silly stuff going on there for at least a dozen years. However, Blue Coats' move to academy status in 2011 prompted further fears that Charterhouse Fields were slipping further from public access. The residents developed a Charterhouse plan, which included the future they envisaged for the fields, and with the help of local councillors, they put together an application to get the area of the tabletop field in particular declared a village green. The application has not been pursued in the hope that an agreement can be reached that satisfied the school and the public, but Dave Griffiths believes that it was a resident's biggest weapon in the fight for the fields. We argued for the council to employ someone to seek grant funding for Charterhouse and the fields. They failed to do so, but that's what Ian Harriban has done. This is a battle that the community should never have had to fight. I think we've got confidence now because the historic Coventry Trust have got an enthusiasm for the area. I like to think we've made the whole project possible and that has meant being in a partnership and being positive. I hope some of you remember the series of David Attenborough years ago where he lay in the bush yards away from enormous mountain gorillas. These wonderful animals are very much endangered species, but Teresa Livonian Cole also managed to come face to face with them in Uganda. And here she recounts this article from The Good Housekeeping, read by Nigel. We creep silently through the undergrowth. Benson, our ranger guide, hacking a path through the jungle with his machete. Then I see it, a fat, hairy leg resting against the tree, the magnificent creature it belongs to, still hidden by dense leaves. I'm in Uganda's aptly named Buwindi Impenetrable National Park, and this is my first glimpse of a mountain gorilla in the wild. The mountain gorilla can be found in only three countries, Uganda, Rwanda, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And this year, Uganda celebrates 30 years of gorilla trekking, the country's biggest tourist draw. Reaching this remote corner of the world is an adventure in itself, and made easier by booking with volcano safaris, pioneers of gorilla and chimpanzee ecosystem. After a night in Entebbe in central Uganda, I board an 11-seater Cessna from the UN airbase in Kahari in the southwest. As the sun rises, we soar above the Rift Valley, the waters of Lake Victoria pink in the morning light. After a two-hour drive, rattling over red earth through rickety mud villages, we reach Volcano's Bwindi Lodge, one of, the, uh, one of around 35 properties on the outskirts of the park. Bwindi is at the luxurious end, and I settle into the sound of birdsong. There are around 350 species in the forest. Not to mention Susan, my trilling butler, who rises before the birds to wake me with a song and coffee each morning. 
The plight of the mountain gorilla first came to our attention in the 1960s through the search of Diane Fossey, played by scenery weaver in 1988 film Gorillas in the Mist. Threatened by habitat destruction, poaching, disease and conflict, mountain gorillas, which share 98.4% of our DNA, became critically endangered in 1981, their total number reaching a low of 242. Before we embark on our trek, we pay the park's Gorilla Conservation Centre a visit. It's about education, says the Centre's field officer, gracious to Wembazi. We go into the local communities and explain the benefits of conservation while teaching them about health and sanitation to limit the spread of disease between humans and gorillas. Tea, a major cash crop in Uganda, and one of the few shrubs gorillas don't eat, is planted to stop them raiding local farms, and volunteers are trained to chase errant gorillas back to the park. But the most persuasive conservation argument is financial. 20% of revenue made from gorilla treks is used by the Ugandan Wildlife Authority to build schools, clinics and roads for local communities. Tourism has also created jobs, and it's heartwarming to hear how former poachers have turned guides, gamekeepers, trackers and porters, while community projects encourage local crafts. The success of these measures means that BINP is now home to almost half the world's population of mountain gorillas, now estimated to be 1,064. Sightings in Burundi are virtually guaranteed. When my turn comes, the morning is cool and misty, the forest wet with dew. After breakfast, I'm kitted out with a rain jacket, gaiters and walking stick, before we head to the park for a briefing and to be allocated to a group of fellow trekkers. Burundi is home to 23 habituated gorilla families, groups that have learned to tolerate the existence of humans. You'll be with the Binyendo group, says Benson, showing us photos and vital statistics of its nine members. Binyendo, the alpha male Litzelbach, was born in 1988, has four adult females in his harem, and his father has two young sons and one baby. After the briefing, we drive to Buhoma, one of four trailheads, where we meet the rest of our team. Three advanced trekkers, two escorts carrying ancient AK-47s, in case we're surprised by a forest elephant, and a porter for each group member. We crest a hill and enter the rainforest, light speckling through the canopy. Overhead, olive baboons sit watching, and Columbus monkeys swing through the trees. But our focus is on far bigger primates. The forest has 25,000 years of, to weave itself into a tangle of vines, roots, lianias, and foliage, and gorillas spend 80% of their time on the jungle floor. Tracker Moses finds knuckle prints and squashed undergrowth indicating the gorilla's presence, and it doesn't take long to spot them. Contented grunts, followed by a potent gorillary whiff and that hairy leg, alert me to something in the bushes. Benson gently chops away at foliage with a clearer view, and there he is. Vignendo, lying on his back, juveniles grooming each other, 
and the female stripping leaves for the juiciest parts of the shoot. Benyindo sits up and eyes us wearily. We inch away, then come across more family members. Moses points to a baby dangling from a branch. He loses his grip and falls. His mother, looking on, beats her chest in exasperation. I feel like a privileged guest in an intimate family setting. Eventually, Pinyundo rises and walks straight past me. Don't be afraid, stand still, Benson whispers, as 2,000 kilograms of ape brushes past. Then Pinyundo turns and stares at me, his eyes dark and intense. In a single second, I read a thousand things into that look. It's most likely interpretation. Time for you to leave. According to St. David Attenborough, there's more meaning and mutual understanding in exchanging a glance with a gorilla than with any other animal I know. I couldn't agree more. It was a magical moment, even if Benyendo was telling me to go away. Glorious gorillas, certainly, but it was their cousins, the chimpanzees, who featured years ago at their tea parties for the TV adverts for PG Tips. Must admit, I used to like those. But that was many years after the introduction of a tea tax, which at the time fueled the original British mafia, the Hawkehurst Gang. This is from an article written by Bob, Rob Crossman in the Daily Express, and it's read by Keith. The stone stands next to a bus stop on the outskirts of Chichester. Today, post-war semi-detached houses, a community centre, and a sense of home county's order prevails on Broyle Road in this anonymous corner of Sussex. Yet, if you can pick out the inscription on the faded stone, you can just about make out a monetary warning. Dated A.D. 1749, the stone proclaims that it stands as a memorial to posterity and a warning to this and succeeding generations. Two centuries ago, this now placid slice of suburbia was the location of a mass execution of the leading members of what is now believed to be the earliest British mafia gang. The Hawkehurst gang was the first time something that looks like modern organised crime appeared in Britain, says Joseph Dragovich, author of a new book on the gang's murderous deeds and ultimate downfall. They were the most successful gang to take advantage of huge changes in British life. They built a criminal empire in Kent and Sussex and were the most violent and destructive gang of the era. Robbing customs houses, brutally killing supposed informants, openly drinking in pubs along the Sussex and Kent coast, and marshalling paramilitary-style horseback raids were all trademarks of the gang's ruthless methods, openly mocking the authorities of the age. Yet the contraband that made them rich was nothing more than tea a product which in the 1700s held a cachet that was hard to comprehend today. The key to the gang's success was tea and tax, explains Joseph. Europe was almost constantly at war in the 18th century, and the British government needed to pay for the army and navy. 
income taxes were almost a century away because most people didn't have incomes in the way that we think of them today. So the government taxed imports like tea, coffee and brandy because they were relatively easy to see coming and going in the ports. As the government needed more money, they cranked up the taxes. This was the era when the British love affair with drinking endless mugs of hot tea began in earnest. Yet it was taxed by weight instead of value, meaning tea lovers were charged the same amount regardless of how much the product actually cost to import. This anomaly resulted in the taxation on tea making up almost 50% of the price passed down to customers. The Hawkehurst gang realised that anyone who avoided paying the tax could make a lot of money. On their most famous raid on Poole Customs House, the gang left the stolen vats of brandy but took the tea. The gang's leaders, Thomas Kingsmill, William Fairall and Arthur Gray, knew the government was not equipped to deal with a heavily armed mafia, committing a crime very few people felt was even a crime at all. In the 18th century, there were no professional police, much less law enforcement, that knew how to deal with something like the, the Hawkehurst gang, uh, says Joseph. Local magistrates weren't able to conduct large investigations, and the Customs Service was using a relatively small number of people to patrol a lot of difficult coastline. Using the military was not a great option either, because people saw that as a slide into dictatorship, for this was an era when we started to see something resembling our modern expectations of the rule of law. The government couldn't just arrest people, they needed evidence to convict people of crimes. Arresting the Hawkers gang was really difficult if there were no willing witnesses. It was this connivance of locals that enabled the Hawkers gang to operate with almost total impunity, culminating in the Paul Custom House raid of 1747, where the gang broke into a lock-up to retake the contraband that had been seized from another local gang. During the raid, they were just acting as hired guns for another smuggling gang, says Joseph. They were the only gang that had the skills and bloody-mindedness to rob a government facility. That is because the gang weren't just successful smugglers, they were fearsome paramilitaries. That was pretty new in British history, and not something that has happened much since. But it would be the pool raid that would signal the slow destruction of the gang. Several months later, one member of the gang, John Diamond, was arrested and jailed. Another, Daniel Chater, offered himself as an alibi, but was seen by a local informant talking in a pub with a customs officer named Galley. Assuming that Chater was leaking secrets to the authorities, gang members arrived and plied the pair with drink. Chater and Galley awoke to find themselves tied to a horse, being ferociously whipped. Believing they had killed Galley, the gang buried him, though it later transpired the officer had still been alive while earth was being piled on top of him. Chater was kept in chains for a further three days, 
before being attacked with a knife, then thrown headfirst down a well. The gang hurled down rocks until his screaming stopped. The gang was ready to beat people senseless and subject them to prolonged pain to make a point, says Joseph. However, after stories of the horrific deaths of Chater and Galley got out, the mood of locals who had hitherto tolerated the Hawkers gang began to fade. Appalled at the violence, information on the gang's whereabouts started to be leaked and the gang leaders were arrested and tried. Some were hanged at Tyburn, while six were hanged north of Chichester on the Broyle Road. Their dead bodies were hung in chains at various locations around Sussex and Kent as a warning. I think the lesson we can learn from the Hawkers gang and organised crime more generally is that you can destroy specific gangs, but it is very difficult to stop the underlying issue that created them in the first place, concludes Joseph. Destroying the Hawkers gang did not end smuggling in the region any more than putting Al Capone in jail ended bootlegging. Stories of the legends of smugglers' tunnels endure to this day in the pubs of Rye and Chichester. Joseph believes some of the spoils seized may still be waiting to be discovered. Arthur Gray built a large house called Seacock's Heath near Hawkers itself, he reveals. After he died, the house fell into dis- disrepair, but it was rebuilt in the 19th century. It was given to the Soviet government after the Second World War and has been a Soviet or Russian embassy since. Gray likely built that house for smuggling. Maybe some tunnels and hidden chambers are in there. Never heard of them, but that was interesting. Now, life in Coventry around the turn of the 20th century was remembered by people of the city who recorded those memories in our series called The Hurdy Gurdy Days, from which Alan now reads another extract. Mrs. Graves lived next door but one to us and had twin boys. She was a poor, frail little woman with a drunken husband who used to take most of his wages to the pub, leaving a small amount on which to run the house and provide food for him and the children. She always seemed to be having babies, which rarely lived past birth. The twins were just about alive, and that was all. They were poor specimens of humanity. Mrs. Graves used to live in dread and fear of her husband. He used to come staggering up the yard after being in the pub for two or three hours, drunk as a lord. Before he had been in the house five minutes, a piercing scream could be heard. The door would open and he would throw her out, her head banging against the brick wall opposite. She would drag herself up somehow and stumble back to protect her babies, only to come back again in a few minutes. This went on for about half an hour until his drunken rage had spent itself and he had fallen asleep over his supper, which was the reason for his temper, because he was not ready at the table when he chose to come in. That poor woman must have been black and blue with bruises, as this was a frequent occurrence, but none of the neighbours interfered. They were all scared of him and kept out of his way, and he enjoyed being a tyrant. The twins eventually died. Then the woman herself died having no strength left to put up with his brutality. 
No authorities intervened. There was no welfare state in those days. That poor unhappy woman had to go to the workhouse because she was too exhausted to carry on. If our Grace had been older, I am sure she would have seen that he was brought to justice for his cruelty. As it was, I can remember how she used to rock these two babies in the cradle. They were so weak they could only whine and whimper. Our ma'am used to warn her about going into that house, but still she went in. As soon as Mrs. Graves heard her husband's hobnail boots on the cobbled yard, she would say to Grace, Go on, quick, he's coming! And Grace would dash out of the house as fast as her little legs would carry her, through the one and only door, and up the yard to our house, never stopping until she was safe inside with the door got bolted. He would see her run out of the door and curse and swear, shaking his fist at her, shouting, "'You bloody little swine! Leave my kids alone! I'll wallop your ass for when you get old on you!' But he never got the chance. Grace's heart would be pounding away underneath her frock, and her mum would say, "'One of these days he'll catch you, Miguel!' After his wife died, Mr. Graves lived alone. He took to drinking heavily, and knowing to lack of proper nourishment, he became ill and couldn't work, so he got the sack from his job. He died a terrible death with cancer of the stomach. His cries could be heard all over the court. Eventually he had to be taken to the workhouse infirmary, as the neighbours refused to do anything for him, and after about a month he died. Now, I hope most of you remember Cliff, who recorded many articles for Outlook, including our thoughts for the day, before he hung up his cassock, so to speak, and he retired. This is the very last piece he recorded. It's called A Grandmother's, and it was written by an eight-year-old boy. A grandmother is a woman who has no children of her own, so she loves the boys and girls of other people. Grandmothers have nothing to do, they only have to be there. If they take you for a walk, they go slowly past beautiful leaves and caterpillars. They never say, come along quickly or hurry up for goodness sake. They're usually fat, but not too fat, to tie up my shoelaces. They wear spectacles and sometimes take out their teeth. They can answer any question, for instance, why dogs hate cats and why God is not married. When they read to us, they never leave anything out. They do not mind if it's always the same story. Everyone should have a grandmother, especially those who do not have a television. Grandmothers are the only grown-ups who have plenty of time. An amazing youngster's perception of grandma. Now, while Dave was at the World Blind Games a couple of weeks ago, he managed to get in-depth interviews with some of its participants. And this is an interview with Mike Brace, who talks about his skiing as a blind person and other achievements. I'm speaking to a hero of mine. I once talked about your book on Coventry's talking newspaper for the visually impaired, the best part of 40 years ago. Mike Brace. Thank um, you. You were a champion blind uh, a skier, weren't you? Can you talk about your sort of uh, exciting things that happened to you when you were skiing, please? Yeah, I mean, I, I set up a sports club in London in 1973, and then we got an invitation. The, the next year and someone said would you like to try skiing in Norway and I did think they were absolutely yeah. mad yeah. and so 15 of us went over there and it was life changing because you 
you're you're out on the slopes. You've got um, just so much freedom. You're not tackled, you know, um, linked to anyone, and you're out in the fresh air. And and then of course you have all of the situations, the shooting. So we do the biathlon. We did the the uh, long distance stuff. Some, yeah. some of the marathons. Yeah. And uh, I think what you're referring to was you know coming down one of the hills. We had to go through a tunnel. Yeah. And I right. and I suddenly found my ski was quite stuck and what I'd managed to do is a lady had fallen down and I'd managed to ski up her back and get my ski under her rucksack strap and I couldn't couldn't extract myself and every time I pushed down she was screaming and shouting and uh, uh, and in the end they pulled me off and pulled her off and and, and I always apologise in my book to her if she ever reads it uh, that I didn't mean to uh, uh, almost assault her with my skis but it was just but the the experience of travelling all over the world with skiing yeah. skied in Japan yeah. and in America and Canada and Europe yeah. um, it is just so so exhilarating so did you have someone skiing beside you or did you have a radio you have a guide uh, yeah. who basically are not allowed to be tackled shackled but they can uh, talk to you while they're doing it so they will give you directions left, right, up, down. Yeah. I do cross-country skiing, so you've got to go up the hills as well as down them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and therefore they have to get it right to tell yeah. you when to go into up mode or down mode. Yeah. You've taken part in other sports. One, I believe, was uh, the throwing the hammer. Yes. And, and, you, and you were sort of in danger of hammering the crowd. That, and that's why they, I think, they um, withdrew hammer throwing from the blind sporting calendar. So I, as far as I know, hammer throwing for the blind has never appeared on any major uh, sports meeting any, ever now. It's, it's, it's banned, uh, mainly for the crowd's perspective, really, because, you know, I, I used to joke about the fact that the Mexican wave wasn't, wasn't ever invented in Mexico at a football match where they all sway round. It was at the first blind athletics meeting where hammer throwing was still on the calendar and all the crowd were ducking in case they let it go, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so what other sports have you taken part in? I've, I've done about 50 different sports over the 60 years, um, ranging from abseiling to surfing to skiing to shooting to archery to uh, scuba diving. I've done a lot of water skiing. Um, I've done race walking, athletics, obviously yeah. shot discus, javelin, uh, and then some, I've been up in a plane and did a got a glider, uh, piloted a glider, uh, driven a couple of buses, and uh, yeah, but and, it, and as soon as someone says, oh, you can't possibly do that, that's been the incentive to want to go and do it. So what was scuba diving like? Were you swimming on fish, were you aware of them? That was very strange, because suddenly you can't see, and a lot of your hearing gets reduced because you're underwater, and, and that was really quite strange yeah. and, and and using quite a lot of your skills to know whether you're upside down or the right way or going in a, in the right direction was, was quite strange but again quite fascinating where you could go down and, and kill uh, items and things like that. Did you actually feel, feel fish? Any yeah. big ones? Yeah. Like sharks? Yeah. No, not sharks. Luckily not <laughs> sharks. It was uh, in the UK so I didn't get any of the basket 
and sharks or dolphins or whatever. So what were your books called, the first one that I read? first one was called Where There's a Will yeah, um, yeah. and started really, I, I lost my son age 10 from a firework yeah. accident yeah. and That's one of the right. big issues was people telling you what you will never be able to do even at that age and yeah. that was a bit like red rag to bull for me so I, I basically said no I'll decide what I do and don't do um, and, and then it started through special schools and yeah. work and employment and then yeah. through the sport thing and the second book is called Don't Ask Me Ask the Dog because yeah, for 50 years I said I wouldn't get a guide dog yeah. and and then when I got a guide dog I, it was really really very good for me yeah. and the right time for me but what still happened was that people came up and said to you you know oh um, I, you know, they'd ask me a question and then not listen to what I'd said and I said well if you don't believe me ask the dog you know as though the guide dog would know more than me so yeah, that's what you don't it, the dog's called King, K I M N G, and um, it's my second dog. Yes. And uh, I, again, the mobility, uh, but it has to be right. When I was working in social work, etc., it yeah. wouldn't have been yeah. appropriate or, or possible for me to have a dog with me because some of the kids were quite disturbed and may well have used the dog as a, a weapon uh, against you. So, um, so when I ran, I ran a prison unit for adolescent girls um, that would certainly not have been a good place to uh, have the dogs with the level of uh, violence that there was. You actually ran the, the, the jail? I was a manager in an adolescent uh, unit for girls. These were, yes. these were adolescent girls who were high tariffs, so they were into secure units, stroke, yeah. Um, yeah. heavily supervised units um, yeah. and between the ages of 12 and 16. Well, so that was your day job. That was the day job in Hackney. <laughs> it's a demanding job. I know. And then I moved on as an area manager and an yeah. assistant, direct, assistant director in North Kensington, so yeah. Notting Hill Gate and and all of the... In fact, the area that I would have had responsibility for would have been Grenfell Tower. So I'm partly relieved that I'm retired and not, uh, not working there. No, and then, of course, yeah, I yeah. left that and set up Vision 2020 which then became Vision UK so I worked for my last 10, 12 years uh, in, in, the VR, in the vision impairment sector and you were involved in British blind sports I suppose from the early days I, you may have started it I was on the organising committee <laughs> yeah. that had the brief and we met about half yeah. a dozen of us met and said how could we get better coordination, better profile better, better focus and uh, about half a dozen of us came up with the constitution and then set up British Blind Sport yeah. and then I became uh, chairman in uh, in the l- uh, late 80s, early yeah. 90s um, and then obviously moved on to yeah. being involved with the Paralympics and being chair of yeah. Paralympics GB. Uh, and, and here we are, the, 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 the world blind sport, yeah. fantastic this what is progress, just, this is just so, so fantastic. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm writing a history of, of my club, Met 
Retro, which is 50 years old now. And during the course of writing it, I suddenly realised that two of my friends and myself, um, uh, Peter Young and Graham Salmon, both of whom sadly are no longer with us, but it's sudden, we suddenly realised that um, we, three of us, were the first B1 athletes, that's athletes we know sign, um, to represent Britain in the Paralympics for, yeah. for, the, for Great Britain. So yeah. in 1976, the Winter Games were installed and uh, we took part in the first Winter Paralympics in uh, March 1976 and became the first blind athletes to compete for Britain. Excellent. Absolutely. Very inspiring. So what message do you have for the listeners to come to this talking newspaper for the visual impact? I think there are, there are two bits. The, the, the power of sports change lives is really true. It really has changed mine. And I think the issue is look at the barriers. The barriers we put in front of ourselves, because very often someone would uh, say, can you do this? And yeah. I'd have to examine whether I could yeah. do it or not. Yeah. And then the second lot is the barriers that others put in front of us. Yeah. And so I'd say, look at the challenge. Look at the challenge. If it's something you want to do, have a go and finding someone and someone to help to enable you to do it and then and then do the ones you enjoy and then acknowledge the fact that you're a failure in the other ones and give them up you know don't just persevere because uh, it's not a principle then just concentrate on the ones you enjoy that's fantastic great speaking to you mike thank you very much it's amazing what people can do these days. All good luck to them. So that just about brings us to the end of this week's programme. So from the team and me, Sheila Allen, it's goodbye till next week.